everyone, this is Tony Holbein from Groblox. You are listening to The Revenue Formula. In today's episode, we are talking with Dave Boyce from Winning by Design about how to manage multiple go-to markets at the same time. Enjoy. It's, it's a really high bar right Don't there. say anything no, funny. So, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but so the, the thing is, uh, last week we were out for beers yeah. and we have a new teammate uh, on our team and uh, he's really into stuff like Pokemon and I go like, really? Pokemon? And then you figure out that he's 10 years younger than yourself. And this weekend, I basically, I've come to the point now where I've stopped counting. So I was actually not sure of my age. And I just decided I'm just going to ask ChatGPT and I came back to him and said, you're 38. And I went like, you're wrong. And no, I checked the numbers. It's correct. It's like, well, it wouldn't be the first time you're wrong. But then I was really happy about today's guest because I saw, and this is fact checked. You can always look up Dave Boyce's profile. It said you have 20 years in SAS. So when you were in SAS, I was basically in school. So, you know, there's still time. There's, are you, there's still are you time. age shaming our guests? <laughs> it's so no. true. It's so true. It's, wow. it's also just experience level wise. He's like more, I mean, it's not just the time you put in. It's also what you do, right? But it's more than 2x yeah. my experience, which is just crazy <laughs> to have that level of experience on the show. So I remember the first time I saw the acronym SAS. We had a, we had a company that we called, at the time they called it a um, ASP. At like, yeah. it was a hosted application, like at a hosting center. There wasn't a cloud really. It was just like we owned the hardware, but it was at a hosting center, and we served up the software, you know, over an internet connection. We called it an ASP. And then the first time I saw the word SAS, the acronym SAS, big S, little A, little A, big S, I was like, that's not a thing. You yeah. guys are just <laughs> making things up now. <laughs> So this, this is the refreshing thing when you have people that have kind of seen this now for a while. Yeah. It's like everything you enter into, right? Where you're kind of new in a company, new in a new in an industry, new anywhere. You kind of look at all the things like, ah, oh, okay, you know, you take everything for granted and it's like super serious about it. But when you have kind of growing with it, you have all of this like, no, you know, SaaS, that sounds terrible. It's never going to stick. We shouldn't go with this at all. We should call it something <laughs> else. And then, you know, suddenly kind of those two worlds crash. So it's I, I love I love hearing those stories. It's good. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I believed in the concept. I just thought it was a goofy acronym. <laughs> and we're getting more and more every day, by the way. There you go. But the latest, <laughs> yeah, the latest is GAAC, Growth oh, yeah. at All Cost. Capital oh, right. G, yes. small a, small a, capital C. Anyway, yeah. moving on from that, maybe, Mikkel. So, uh, I mean, we have Dave Boyce with us on the show, so I've really been looking forward, really happy yes. uh, you said yes to hop on the show and share your knowledge today with us, Dave. Um, you are, I, so again, I'm just stealing straight up from LinkedIn here because it's just easy. It's, you, it's your words at the end of the day. You're a go-to-market focused SaaS advisor and board member. We already covered you. You have 20 years in SaaS. Uh, you've helped sell a couple of companies to companies such as Oracle and Amazon. Um, you've raised a lot of money together with companies and uh, working as executive chairman at Winning by Design. And then, you know, it seems probably as a side hobby, you also write on Substack and you kind of mentioned you have uh, something on the way as well. Oh, yes. I've been very busy, heads down, writing a book on product-led go-to-market. I know we're going to talk a little bit about this and then hoping hoping i've been interviewing a ton of um growth executives like big companies small companies uh, companies that launched 
product-led growth after they already were at $100 million, companies that launched product-led growth from the beginning, companies that run multiple GTMs at the same time, just trying to figure out, you know, like this is more than, you know, more than a uh, trend or a gimmick. What is it? Like, how does it fit? How does it fit in the kind of pan pantheon of go-to-market? And we all know the big stories about... Um, you know, Atlassian, they got to $100 million with no Salesforce and Slack that bragged about never needing a Salesforce. Of course, they do have a Salesforce now and Dropbox and Calendly and DocuSign. But then we know less about the stories, you know, uh, you know, stories of like Unity Software who added PLG kind of after they were at $100 million or MongoDB that did the same thing. And we think of, um, we think of HubSpot as a product-led growth company, but they were not in the beginning. They were sales-led. They were their inbound, of course. They were innovating on the inbound. But they did not have product-led growth until after they were at $100 million, and then they added it. So I've been, I've been going to school on that, studying it, writing this book. And we got, um, just last week, I'm really happy about this, just last week, signed with uh, Stanford Business Press to publish that book. Congratulations. And everyone who's listening, you heard it here first. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. It's one week old. Yeah. <laughs> yes, there you go. So, but let's jump actually right into this, right? Because, you know, when you, when you, when you think about this, oh, should we do inbound? Should we do outbound? Should we do PLG? Should we do like events and partners and whatever? Everyone is always thinking like, yeah, the more the better, right? Kind of, we get more leads, we get more inbounds, we get, you know, more deals, we can, you know, close more business, we can grow faster. But that's kind of that's kind of the the the, the problem set that we want to talk about today is like, well, wait a minute, that's actually not true, right? So kind of you know the the, the question to kick us off here. So what is what is the downside of running multiple go-to markets, or what's what's so difficult about doing this, and 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 should you be doing this in the first place anyway, right? So let's let's maybe kind of dive into that topic. Oh my, yeah, I think you've been reading my journals. <laughs> it, it's rough. I, I know you guys have built companies. It is, um, you're right. It's very tempting. You know, you, let me, let me put three bets out there and see which one pays off. Yes. Um, that that's kind of one. And I had a, you know, I had a very early stage company where I was running two go to markets and, um, at the same time, and we were sub $1 million. Not smart. Like, I, I mean, it's hard. Like we were working so hard. We were showing up, um, you know, at eight in the morning, we had a personal trainer who came and like worked us out. And then we were there till 10 at night, every night. We had two different go to markets that we were having to tune and test and monitor. And, um, and I was only one person and our head of product was only one person. And our, um, head of marketing was only one person. Um, there were a few, and we were on a big team. We're 15 people. So how, you know, how are you going to get kind of critical mass onto kind of one motion and tune it um, to the point where it needs to be. It was hard. And since then I've learned, you know, just rule of thumb. Yes, we're gonna add a second go-to-market at some point. But first, how about we get the first go-to-market working well? And there's a, there's a method to it. We can talk more about it, but there's, you know, there's a sequence of events that you would pursue around go-to-market fit and, or sorry, product-market fit and then go-to-market fit on a first GTM and then mm -hmm. a second GTM you can add, I think, at about $10 million. Before, before we kind of go into that, maybe you should almost clean up what does it mean go-to-market motion, right? Kind of what, 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 you know, let's define that first so we're all making sure we're talking about the same thing and let's take it from there. So I like to think in processes and systems. 
Like, I think we are building a go-to-market motion is a system that is comprised of a set of processes that are then executed by either humans or machines. But those processes that define kind of how we're going to support the buying motion for our customers. And we can, and there's, there's, you know, distinct versions. You mentioned some already. There's an, there's an inbound go-to-market motion, which means I'm going to put marketing material out there, you know, value-added kind of content marketing uh, out there. I'm going to let people engage with it. I'm going to let them kind of, I'm, I'm going to track their engagement, and I'm going to let them register interest. And then once they register interest, I'll follow up on that inbound interest, and I, and that's generally done with a, you know, like a SDR team, and then I will convert that interest into a sale. Okay. That's one. That's an inbound motion. Separate from that would be like an outbound go-to-market motion, which might, which might be uh, account-based marketing. That's where I'm identifying the companies and the humans at those companies who I think would be a good match for this. And then I'm going to actually target them I'm either through um, you know targeted advertising or, or email or outbound calling. And I'm going to, I'm going to, for that ICP company and those target personas, I'm going to make sure that they know about me and my solution. So when the time comes right for them, we might be able to start an opportunity there. That's an outbound motion. It's actually more expensive than an inbound motion. And then on the totally other end of the spectrum would be like PLG product led. It looks a lot like inbound, but instead of me converting that inbound demand via with an SDR conversation, I'll convert that inbound demand by just letting them start in the product on a self-service Mm-hmm. motion. It's kind of a no-touch self-service. So yes, just get started. Let's uh, let you experience impact before you make any financial commitment to me. And then it rolls from there. Each of those is very distinct. Like you need a mix of of marketing and product and lead development and sales skills that are different on the ABM side versus on the self-service side, and then somewhere in the middle on the um, on the inbound so now that we have defined this, right, and I think a couple of people are coming up with new motions right now. It's kind of very in. I think, you know, it, it worked really well with PLG. And now you have people saying, well, events-led, partnership-led, you know, all-bound, near-bound, ABM, whatever. Some of them are probably not specifically distinct motions, right? But it's it's starting to feel like there's a there's a lot of optionality here, right? So, you know, kind of leave, leaving that topic maybe behind for a second, really the... The next step then here is trying to figure out, okay, what is that sequence of events? Kind of, you mentioned this kind of previously, and many people listening here, um, probably beyond the 10 or 20 million in ARR, so they, they might have not even been around when this organization was a million or was mm. pre-product market fit and so forth. But let's talk about those those sequence of events that you mentioned there uh, and where it then fits into potentially then go multi-GTM motion, right? Which is really this, this breaking point in a positive way that, that we want to kind of dissect here today. Okay. So, yes. So we're, sequence of events is great. That is, uh, you know, that's a process. I think we manage processes, manage systems with, or processes. I could use those interchangeably mm-hmm. and we lead people. If we're trying to manage people, that's, that's kind of difficult. <laughs> you know, I, I want, I would like to establish a system and then, see if that system is performing for me. That system is going to be a series of processes. It's going to have a sequence of events just like you talked about. And if sequence of events A, B, C isn't delivering the output that I want, 
then I work on the process, not on the person. Now, if the person's not executing ABC, okay, that's, you know, that, that's something different. That's a leadership challenge. But I, w- I would like to test process ABC and see if it produces what I want. So you can think about where the demo is in the process. Am I demoing on the first interaction or am I not demoing on the first interaction? And there are different different markets and different products and different eras where, you know, demoing used to not make sense in the beginning because of something that I held back because it was kind of some power that I had as a seller. And then we, and we've moved over time to where actually everyone expects a demo. So demo early on or demo as discovery, but I wanted to find what that is. And then I want to test it almost like a scientist in a lab. Does this type of demo and these, this, this kind of a conversation at this step in the process produce conversion to the next step, like a qualified, a sales qualified opportunity? Does it create the conversion that I would expect? If it's doing its job, great. Then I will, you know, endorse that as part of the process that works. And if it's not, I'll keep experimenting. And part of the issue here, uh, Tony, is um, it takes time to run these experiments. Mm-hmm. Like, like, let me do it 10 times. Let me do it 20 times. Let me see if it's working. Let me see if there's any adjustments. Let me hear back from the front, either from the product that's telling me because of metrics or from the humans that are telling me because of the results that they're seeing. And also now I can monitor some of these interactions through uh, call recordings and transcriptions and even sentiment analysis, whether that's working the way that it was intended to and what adjustments I need to make to get it working. So I'm going to test those kind of that sequence of events until I get something that works. And when we are, when we're trying to get a go-to-market fit, like we're trying to get a go-to-market process to work, quote unquote, we're really, we can do, we can test that quantitatively. Like what we're really looking for in a go-to-market fit is unit economics. We want, and, I, and the unit economics that I like the best, because you don't have to wait that long to know if it's happening, is CAC payback. So here I got to sharpen my pencil and I've got to like become, you know, become a RevOps, uh, you know, revenue architect. But I need to figure out what's the total amount that I'm spending in marketing and sales on average to acquire one new customer. And then how long will it take me to recoup that investment in months? And if that is 12 months or lower, I'm probably in pretty good shape. Of course, this changes by product and by industry. But if I spend pick a round number. If I spend $1,000 to acquire a new customer, will I get my $1,000 back within a year? If I spend $10,000 to get a new customer, will I get my $10,000 back within a year? If it's going to take me two or three or four years, you know, I'm almost a bank at that point. I'm like financing all of those activities and just waiting for those future cash flows to pay me back. And that's, um, that's a tricky spot to be in. And it does feed into this growth at all costs mindset. Yeah. And, and would you say kind of the, the sheer difficulty of figuring this stuff out and the volume you need to have in order to run through all the experiments, would you say that that's the reason why you should be waiting with, you know, multiple go-to-market motions? Is kind of, is that the, is that the root cause? You know, if you break it all the way down, is that the reason? Uh, I'd say yes, asterisk. <laughs> yeah. It's one of them, one of them. Um, I don't think it's as hard as people think. Um I mean, especially if you only have one. I mean, this is a really good point, Tony. Like, if I'm trying to take, you know, let's say I take a really tough 
spend category in marketing, like brand and creative. And I'm like, well, how much of brand and creative goes to GTMA versus GTMB? And then I have to kind of divide it down. I have to somehow prorate to allocate it. It's fine. Like any answer is fine as long as you allocate every dollar. But it it does create arguments. If I only have one GTM, then great. I could put all of brand brand and creative behind Mm -hmm. GTMA and just charge GTMA for everything I'm doing in marketing and everything I'm doing in sales and tune it until I get it right. But the other thing is... um, as I move through this experimentation, you know, building these processes, it, what's what's working in marketing for demand creation? What's working working in um, uh, lead development? What's working in my close motion? As I as I move through that and optimize it, I want to leave behind defined processes and mm-hmm. and systems if I can, because when I when I move ahead to the next frontier, like let's say I'm going to go do GTMB. I want to know that GTMA is fairly programmed. <laughs> like it's fairly like like if I take my 100% kind of CEO or head of, you know, uh revenue attention off of GTMA and start focusing on iterating GTMB, I want to know that GTMA is actually going to keep going. Like I don't need to be sitting next to each of those humans and coaching them and doing deal reviews and doing call reviews. Not that my managers wouldn't be doing that, but they know what they're doing. Like they know what they're measuring themselves against. They're measuring themselves against a process that we defined, we wrote down, we, um, we either put it into the systems and, or we put it into their processes. And so it's, it's fine tuned. So those are a couple reasons. One is just the complexity around analysis, but the other is I want to define things in my wake and leave them behind as a defined process so I can move to the next one. Mm-hmm. I think this is kind of a really cool key takeaway, right? And I think, I'm not sure if you kind of mentioned this in the intro of this is, is, you know, some of the homework we did, but you were kind of, hey, you should be having one go-to-market motion until you maybe hit 10 million. Uh, And then you should be thinking about doing the next, right? And I think that's a great rule of thumb for people to take away and kind of question like, oh, you know, we're doing inbound and outbound. We're not even 10 million. Is this the right thing that we're doing? But at the same time, it's actually also about the, the, you know, the confidence and the ability to, okay, we have that figured out. Now we can spend brain power on the next thing we'll figure out, right? Because that's kind of what he's saying there. And and to a degree, kind of the 10 million is almost the, well, rule of thumb, you'll probably have one thing nailed by 10 million and then you have, you know, had space to move on to the next piece, right? At least that's kind of how I'm hearing you explain yes. it, right? Yeah, yes. there you go. Yeah, and 10, 10 could be eight, 10 could be six, yeah. 10 could be 12, you know, Look, if I could get to a hundred million and never have to change what I was doing, I would do it. But I might run out of market. I might run out of, um, you know, what I want is a scalable source of new customers that I can acquire um, efficiently. Mm-hmm. And if if I'm not running out of customers and I can continue, let's say I'm running SEM and SEO for inbound interest. I've got content marketing and I'm running an inbound motion and, and I've got no signs of stopping and I'm blowing through $10 million. Why do I need to add something else? Like if, if I'm still accelerating, why do I need to add something else? But I will at some point start to see that acceleration rate taper off and I'm going to need to be ready for another motion to put in there because all growth follows an S curve. All, you know, in, sat, in recurring revenue and all revenue growth, it follows an S curve. We're going to accelerate through a certain period and then we're going to, and then we're going to attenuate. And, um, for me to kind of postpone that attenuation, adding another GTM is almost always, um, going to be the right answer. But to your point, I don't want to add chaos on top of chaos. 
if I'm going to go figure out a new um, a new GTM, I'd like the prior GTM to be pretty uh, locked down. A lot of people listening will feel very very guilty right now. Like, oh, he's, <laughs> Bro, he's, he's oh, looking me at me right me now. Me too. You know? Point at me. <laughs> yeah. So I'm just sitting here thinking if there's one thing I think that defines a lot of SaaS startups is we're very impatient. We want results now and there's no room for failure. And so I'm just wondering what are kind of the prerequisites when you start this test you mentioned in the sequence of events? I could see some folks having their you know annual plan, which was just completed by a bunch of companies, and then accidentally adding Q1. Yeah, then the motion is kind of working. So revenue, like what what kind of you know almost safeguards do you need in place? How how do you think about that side of of basically running the test? How long do you let it run, for example, and so on? Yeah, I mean, we're playing scientists, but we we don't have to. You know, we're we're not looking for. Um, you know, 10 significant digits here. We're not trying to prove this, you know, to get accepted in a peer-reviewed publication. <laughs> we, we're just, we're directionally trying to get this right. So you'll kind of, you'll kind of know, like, there's some scientific principles that help. You don't want to run multiple experiments at once. So I don't want to be experimenting on the sequence events and also the content of those events at the exact same time, because then I won't know which thing moved the needle. So we do need to sequence our experiments in a way that we can, you know, run an experiment, see what worked. If it worked, keep it. If it didn't work, kill it. And each of those takes a little bit of time. But I don't think, I mean, most experiments you can run in a couple of weeks. You define them in a couple of weeks and then run them in a couple of weeks and then decide, you know, whether... It's part of your go forward or not, but it takes a little bit of time to string together, you know, a two week experiment, another two week experiment, maybe some sets of non competing experiments during the same two weeks and then another set and then another set. I mean, now pretty soon we're in months, but the cool thing is every time one of those experiments resolves either to a positive or a negative result, I know more than I did before I launched that experiment. And every time one of those makes it into the process, um, it's in the process, like kind of capital P, like it's been, um, coronated. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't have to think about it again. I'm not sure I'm answering your question, Miguel, but, uh, no, let me, let are. me ask you the question the other way around, actually it's, and, and maybe we're looking more for a rule of thumb instead of the, what do you say? We're playing scientists here. I love that. That's like so <laughs> true. The, uh, it's really more about how much time should you be, you know, expecting for a new motion to maybe fall into place almost how long, you know, rule of thumb wise, is the the terrible part of the S curve going to take before it's like suddenly it's going to be significant, right? Do you have like a hey usually you know if you want to roll out outbound, let's just say that you start today, you roll outbound really you know this thing working out unless you outlier crazy awesome, it's probably going to take X. Do you have yeah. some of like a rule of thumb like this in the back of your head? Ish, ish, but it, I mean obviously. Every, every one of those answers is going to say it, mm -hmm. it depends, but, um, but human, human driven processes are generally quicker to update than processes that are you know, programmed into code. And that's just because training of humans, especially if you have a good leader can result in kind of something new being in production tomorrow. Whereas yeah. if I have to design a user experience, and then put it into the code and then uh, test it and launch it, it takes more than just tomorrow. It might take, you know, a week or two weeks. So this is funny. Um, and obviously for everyone who doesn't know this, Dave is a big 
PLG guy, right? <laughs> Dave is basically the PLG guy. So looking at this, so I've I've only dabbled my feet on, on the operation side and kind of building up a PLG thing, but you're so right. Uh, but I was always so jealous of PLG because of this one other thing, which is, well, once you made the change, it kind of sticks. And that's different actually on the on the human side, right? Kind of right. sure you can you can you can go into production, you know, you, as you mentioned, overnight. But my big problem, and we actually had KD on the show yesterday, kind of that's probably oh, out differently. And he has this like almost human engineering, you know, yes. leadership mindset, right? Which is also fantastic. But my problem was always, well, you tell them the new thing and then they do it, but then you tell them another new thing the next day, which they will also do, but they stop doing the other thing, right? Right. So it's really difficult with humans, I feel. It makes me sound like yeah. very terrible, <laughs> I was by like, the way. And to kind of keep this, you know, keep adding change on top of positive change versus in the PLG land in the, in the more, you know, developed coded uh, basic kind of space. Everything that works, you can, you know, by default that stays. And then it can keep building on top of that, right? So I was always super jealous of that. Um, and it's so funny to see the the other side of the coin, like, well, yeah, but it also takes longer to kind of put in code, right? Yep. You kind of said it. We have a PLG expert on the show. And I think maybe to get a bit practical, because you mentioned a couple of companies in the beginning where they went from, you know, a sales-led to PLG and PLG to sales-led. And I think we've, you know, we've heard quite a few companies now where it throws a lot of sand in the gears e either way right i think this can portray some of the challenges by going multi-motion so i'm pretty curious to hear kind of your experience what are some of the the challenges you see with going you know either from from sales led to also then having plg and vice versa because this makes it way more real all of a sudden oh my gosh okay perfect all right so first we'll start with my favorite if i were building a company from scratch today i would start I would try to start with a self-service motion, a PLG motion. I would try to get that flywheel going. I would try, Tony, to your point, I'd try to get things programmed into that GTM machine so I didn't have to think about it again. Um, and then I would try to get to $10 million, and then I would add on an inbound, add, add on a sales assist motion, and then I might, and then eventually I'd add on a um, uh, an ABM motion. Mm -hmm. Here's what often happens when, when and, and Winning by Design, we work with a lot of companies that got to, you know, 10 or $20 million through PLG, and now they want to add sales. And Winning by Design is known as the GTM company, and we're good at sales and good at sales training. So great, you know, here's a technical founder, um, not super thrilled about having to hire, a, you know, some sort of unicorn sales leader who's going to do some black magic and do something that's not programmed. So can you help me, Winning by Design? One of the real struggle, the real challenges, and we've been, we've lived this, is they think they're going to build, or, or let's just say we. I, I don't want to say they. Like we've all made these mistakes. Mm -hmm. We think we're going to build a separate GTM motion over there. Like here's my current GTM motion over here, and then I'm going to build another GTM motion over there. So I do PLG, which is a flywheel, and then I'm going to do some sort of enterprise selling over there. You can do it, but you, but you lose all the leverage. Um, what I'd rather do is build a sales motion right next to my PLG motion and leverage the flywheel that I've already built. So rather than me trying to sell million-dollar deals, maybe I can sell $15,000 deals, and I can source those from the companies that are already starting in a self-service motion. 
And that, that's a much more integrated, uh, that's sometimes called product-led sales, to your point, Tony, is all of these, you know, product-led, market-led, events-led, yeah. whatever. But product-led sales, meaning I'm going to leverage the usage of the product to tee up opportunities for sales. And that's called a PQL, product qualified lead, or um, or a PQA, a product qualified account. And that's much, much more fun to engage with someone who's already, with a company that's already experiencing success from the product than to be cold calling. Now, the deals may not be as big. You know, I might have to work my way up from a 5,000 ACV to a 10,000 ACV to a 15,000 ACV to a 20, but that's a much more methodical way of building than to just go all the way over there and expect million dollar deals. The other thing about trying to build all the way over there is super long sales cycles, super long hiring cycles, super long until you, uh, super long ramps until you decide, uh, can figure out whether someone is successful. And because it's so disconnected from your current GTM, you know, almost nothing about whether it's going to work until two years down the road when it, either did work or didn't work. So th mm -hmm. that's the mistake I usually see when we're going from PLG to sales led is that I, I build, I get, try to go too big, too fast, and I don't get leverage for my current motion. In the other direction, it's like, wipe your mind of all of that because this is a completely different mindset. So now I've <laughs> built a, um, now I built a sales led business and I'm used to selling 20,000, 50,000, $100,000 deals. And now somebody comes up with the idea like, hey, we should do a free version of our product. Okay. So now you, you've, you've literally just waved the red, the red rag in front of a bull. So all the yeah. revenue leaders are going to say, no, 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 no. You're not giving my product away for free. I charge for that. You're not going to put something on the website that says free. That's going to mess me up. You're not going to put something on the website that says $19. That's going to mess me up. Um, you're not going to sell to those teeny little companies that are going to churn. That's going to mess me up. Um, so what you have to do in this case, it was really interesting talking to Kip Bodnar, the uh, CMO of HubSpot. When they, when they decided to do this, they knew that it was going to draw lots of fire from the existing managers, engineering managers, product managers, sales managers. So they said, no, no, we're actually going to, take a team and put them off to the side, break all their former reporting structures. So yes, I have an, I have engineers on this team, but they don't report into engineering. Yes, I have mar uh, performance marketing on this team, but it doesn't report into marketing. And in their case, they actually had um, sales, but it was more like kind of like almost like a blend of service and sales, but they're not going to report into their former bosses. We're going to create a team and we're going to put them off to the side and we're going to give them separate objectives and we're going to let them work on that in their case, for three years. It took them three years to get to $10 million in a self-service motion. But I guarantee you they weren't doing anything impressive on, in an ARR front in year one. I'm sure they weren't. The only reason that team even survived is because the CEO cared about it. Brian was protecting them. Um, but if they had been reporting to the former bosses, everyone would be watching and saying, well, you had a year, sorry. Yeah. Um, you know, We're going to kill it now. It's just not enough time, though. Um, so, But... After three years, they were at $10 million, and then, they, and then they folded it back into the company. And then the core company started learning from, from the motions that they had established in that. So very, very different challenges, um, depending on which direction you're going. So it's almost like skunk works. Like yeah. I remember yes. the classic Ford, right? Uh, when they built, was it the GT, I think, or something like this? 
And that was kind of uh, also an amazing story. But that actually kind of triggered another question in me, right? So obviously the the HubSpot story obviously is success, you know, and the, the the survivorship bias and you know all of these things that you can assign to it. But it's like almost well, what what are signs where you should kill some of those new go to market motions, right? Maybe mm. you have PLG running um, and you want to add product led sales, or the other way around. Do you have some like oh oh those are like red flags where you should probably abort instead of trying to keep pushing because i think this is this is something that someone's in the middle of it and they're seeing disappointing results and they're getting pressure from all all different angles maybe from the board maybe from the ceo maybe from the vp of sales you know what is the what is the rationale for them to keep pushing uh, versus pulling the plug yeah so yeah oh my gosh <laughs> I've made both mistakes. Usually I give up too early because <laughs> um, I'm impatient. <laughs> but the, um, I mean, we're looking for unit economics. To me, that's the yardstick for uh, go-to-market fit. I want a scalable source of new customers that I can acquire economically. And the way I would define that is, you know, CAC payback of less than 12 months, plus or minus, depending on your market. So how long am I going to work until I can get that? Three months, six months, nine months, 12 months? In a human-led motion, it also depends on your sales cycle, Tony. Like if I've got a, if I'm trying to add a, um, an enterprise ABM motion and it's a nine to 12-month sales cycle, I can't give up in nine to 12 months. That would be dumb. That would mean the very first effort that I deployed on day one, I'm going to expect to be paying off you know, at the nine month and one day mark. Well, that's probably not going to work. I probably actually needed a little bit of time in there to do some hiring, to do some training, to do some process definition. So that's going to be a two plus year experiment, probably more like three years if I'm going, if I'm adding a, a big enterprise ABM motion. But if I'm adding something, you know, with a, with three month sales cycles, it might take me a year. And it also depends on whether I have the humans already hired or not, or whether I have to go hire them and train them from scratch. So, but I think we can be smart about it. You can pencil it out. It's, it's, it's literally just engineering. Like how long does it take me to hire? How long does it take me to onboard? How long does it take me to ramp? And how long is my sales cycle? And what would a reasonable expectation be for me to work through all of that and then start to see signs of, of success? And maybe, I, and maybe I would write that down in the beginning as like my experiment design so they don't forget it and get impatient at, year, at month six when actually in month six I wouldn't have logically expected this to be paying off yet. Yeah. How many teams do you actually see being so diligent about this process, by the way? Because I see almost every team being not that diligent about this process. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've sat in planning processes like the ones you just described that we all just finished. And, 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 you know, you go, you look at FPNA and they say, and you say, okay, so how long, what should our ramp assumption be for new reps? Well, historically our, our reps have gotten productive at month 11. Oh no, 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 that's too long. <laughs> Well, I'm just telling you what history has been. Eleven, okay, yeah, but no, I mean, no, we're Let's better than that. Six, we can okay, do six. Dave? Let's assume right. six. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Why are we doing new training? Well, you know, we lots of stuff has gotten better since you know. 
there's almost no explanation. It's just like I can't stomach writing that number down, so I'm going to write a, a shorter number down. And then it goes in the spreadsheet, and then it becomes a thing that I measure myself against. But it was never reality. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe kind of one last question to kind of round that, you know, topic segment up a little bit. So, I mean, uh, you're in the U.S., let's just call you U.S. first. And then you have a bunch of people in EMEA uh, that are, you know, basically smaller market first, right? So for them to break out of their existing market, um, that in itself is almost like a new go-to-market, I would actually say. I, I would love to hear your thoughts on this, actually. Kind of, would you put it more into the, well, it's kind of a it's kind of a whole thing. It's a new product market fit, a new go-to-market fit, or, um, you know, just how people need to think about it, right? Because we are in Denmark. It's not Small like, time. it's not like Roblox is like a Danish kind of thing. So, you know, mm. we don't necessarily have this problem. But many other teams start in their whole market and we have 6 million people. I mean, fewer people than live in New York City, basically, live in Denmark. So, you know, very soon you need to broaden out, right? Is that also almost like a new go-to-market motion from your perspective? Yeah, I, I, I would say less and less a new product market fit, like you said. Like we're developing, generally we're developing products that have universal appeal, you know, language aside, but... um and in some cases, like with financial markets or, th or regulated markets, that's not exactly true. But if, in generally, we're building products that are go going to appeal to a global economy. And, um, but the go-to-market fit is different because I'm targeting, if I'm solving for CAC payback, what do I have to spend on what channels to get people into my funnel? That's going to be maybe different. In the U.S., I, I got to compete against different competitors for different AdWords, different targeting. I'm paying different rates. I'm in different auctions for that for those eyeballs, and it's just going to be a little bit different. Okay, well then, what can I, you know, at what rate can I convert those that inbound interest into like an MQL? At that point, if the markets aren't that different, I mean, the com competition might affect my conversion rate, but but maybe I start to level out once I get somebody in there. Um, and then maybe I start to, and then maybe the sales cycle is almost the same once I get them all the way to a sales qualified opportunity. But I do think, I don't think we want to take our planning assumptions and just assume that they're all going to be exactly the same and, and, you know, budget out a full year using those planning assumptions. I think we want to build in some testing, you know, three months of testing in a new market, see, see what's the same and what's different. And then, you know, extrapolate those across uh, the rest of our year. So I'm slowly going to start to take us home now. And I want to end with uh, one question. Because you co-authored, I believe, the Has SaaS Lost Go-To-Market Fit? Uh, yes. Which we covered uh, not so long ago. And I think this puts a lot of pressure on companies to go and find that motion. Because one of them just, it broke. Like the unit economics doesn't work out anymore. And we've covered a bit of ground now. So if you can kind of speak directly to the listener who, who might be in that situation, can you kind of all, sum all up? Of him. <laughs> all of them. Can you <laughs> yeah. kind of can you maybe you know provide you know some good vibes first and then hey, here's here's what we covered and some of the steps you can now go and take and consider um, to potentially find a new motion that does work. Yeah. Well, step one, and most of us have done this. Step one is we gotta we have to secure um, default alive. We have to secure that we can stay alive. And for me, I would like two two years of runway without being dependent on external funding. The financial markets are so unpredictable. 
if my plan to succeed includes me getting funding from an outside source within the next year, that's a giant question mark. <laughs> so if I can, a lot of us have done the cost cutting, we've gotten our free cash flow back, we've figured out how to secure runway. So I'm, let's assume that you've done that. If you haven't done that, that's what I would do. Do not depend on outside funding in a fickle and changing financial market. After that, then we got to build, to your point, Miguel, we got to build back up. And my recommendation, let's say we're at scale, we're over $20 million or over $30 million, is to look at each of your current GTMs as its own standalone business. And then go analyze. We talked a little earlier about allocating marketing costs. Um, you know, you can also think about allocating sales costs and overhead, but you want to take all your sales and marketing across your entire business and assign it to each of your individual GTMs. Let's say you have three GTMs. That's already something you got to decide. Do we have three or do we have two? I don't know. Do we have, uh, maybe we have four, whatever, make that decision, figure out where the lines are, take all of your costs and divide it up and then, and then calculate your CAC payback in GTM A, in GTM B, in GTM C, in GTM D. This is a, a good exercise for sales ops strategy, FP&A to collaborate on. You don't have to distract your frontline sellers or your managers or you know anyone who's actively um, building the business. And then, um, and then just be really insistent that you understand the unit economics of each one. One of them will be better than the other three, and one of them will be worse than the other three, and then there'll be two in the middle. That's just the way it's going to work out. So the one that's not providing you the CAC payback, then you ask the questions, is this something I can save, or is this something that I want to wind down? Is it something I could fold? Could I serve the same market with a more efficient motion? My guess is you're going to find that the long sales cycle motion, you know, your most enterprise motion will have the most expensive people and will have the most, most expensive people. Like you'll have sales engineers and value engineers and, and salespeople and managers and, you know, RVPs, regional vice presidents. And once you kind of put that all into the mix, you're going to find, gosh, this is a three-year CAC payback. Can I really afford that right now? That's my guess. You're going to find, and then you're going to have some hard decisions to make. Like, can I serve those same customers? And, and I've done this in a prior business, uh, and we've seen some, some of our clients do this. Can I serve those same customers on an inside sales model or on an inbound model or even on a... Um, on a less expensive BDR kind of outbound model and do smaller lands. In other words, I'm not going after the million dollar first deal. I'm going to go after a smaller land, $50,000 first deal, which I can do much more quickly, get myself through all the hurdles of approved vendor status and, and infosec and all kind of, and legal and, and all that stuff. And then from that $50,000 deal, go sell an expansion and then another expansion and then another expansion. It is possible to re-architect pieces of this once, and once you understand the unit economics, you might find the motivation to do that. Dave, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for spending time and uh, enlightening all our listeners on how to really think about, you know, running those different motions, when to start them, maybe when to stop them. and. And in the current climate, how to, you know, refine and reestablish your go-to-market fit. Thank you so much. Uh, Dave Boys, everyone. You guys are the best. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Have a good one. Bye-bye.